old man walked right up to the stepmother. He said, I will help you carry this wood back to your house, but what will you give to me? Giovanni would call out, and now for the sun in the heavens, and he would pick up a golden ball. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales, personal tales, fairy tales, historical tales, and more. Now sometimes when you read or listen to a story, you come across heroes with all kinds of supernatural abilities or abilities that seem supernatural as they wield swords and climb tall mountains and make all kinds of magical ventures into the solving of the problems that come up in the stories. And not everybody in real life, of course, has a lot of those superpowers or those sword-wielding abilities or mountain climbing abilities, they could almost certainly, though, use their brains, right? Their wisdom, their cleverness to think themselves into a solution for the problems that they face. That's how most of us have to get out of our jams, right? And in today's stories, we'll get to know how certain characters forge their own destinies by outsmarting and outplanning their foes. There's some magic, of course, in the tales that you'll hear today. But uh, as you listen to the stories this hour in the Appleseed, we invite you to think of times when you've used your wit or your wisdom, or your good thoughts or your good thinking to solve some of the problems that come your way in this life. We're going to hear from the story crafters today, a story called Tipingi that you're going to really love, the duo tandem storytelling of the story crafters. You're going to hear a story from a collection of stories about trees, stories from all over the world. The story you'll hear today is called Three Green Ladies by Diane Edgecombe. We're going to have a conversation with the great storyteller Kim Whitecamp as well, a conversation that'll take you back to camping trips that you may have enjoyed. You're going to really enjoy that conversation. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to have in the studio with me Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. It's great to be here. And this story by Fran Yardley is one with kind of an interesting title. It's called The Clown of God. Tell us about that. It is indeed. All right. So this is the story of a poor boy in Italy a very long time ago who discovers that he has a talent for juggling. And so he puts on a clown face and juggles and he makes a living that way and he he gains a lot of money and fame and he makes a lot of people smile. Yeah. You know, sometimes our... Our our jobs, our jobs can be a sacred expression. Exactly. Right? Yes. And I love this story so much because it talks about just that, about how making people smile and doing doing our part can can help others and connect us to to higher things. Yeah. This notion that doing well what you've chosen to do can be an act of devotion, right? Exactly. Well, here's the story. Fran Yardley with The Clown of God, here on The Appleseed. Well, here's a story that in its original form dates back to at least the 11th century. Many years ago, 
In the town of Sorrento in Italy, there lived a young boy named Giovanni. He was very poor, and he had no mother and no father. He dressed in rags, slept in doorways, and he begged his bread. But Giovanni was happy because he could do something wonderful. He could juggle. Every day, Giovanni would go to Signor Baptista's fruit and vegetable stall in the marketplace, and he would pick up lemons, and he would juggle them. Sometimes he would pick up the oranges and juggle those. If he was feeling particularly brave, he'd pick up the zucchini and the eggplant and <laughs> juggle them together. And people from all over the marketplace would gather to watch him juggle because he was so good. And when he was finished, they would buy their fruit and vegetables from Signor Baptista. And then Signor Baptista's wife would give Giovanni a bowl of hot soup. So it was a good arrangement for everyone. Now one day, a troop of traveling players came to town and they set up in the marketplace. And Giovanni watched as the characters Arlecchino and Columbina danced and sang in their beautiful clothes. Oh, thought Giovanni, that is the life for me. And when the play was over, he went up and spoke to the maestro. And the maestro listened. No, no, what need have I of a little ragamuffin like you? Go, go, beg your bread somewhere else. Oh, but, but, Maestro, I, I could help you pack up and unpack, and I could take care of the donkey, and, Maestro, I can juggle. Hmm, you, uh, you can juggle? Yes, see, I can juggle. Hmm, not bad. <laughs> not bad, well, with a little training and practice. All right, uh, but no money. Uh, the company of the finest players in all of Italy and a cup of hot soup, that's all. Oh, grazie, maestro. Oh, uh, run, pack up your things. We, uh, we leave in an hour. And so Giovanni went and said goodbye to Signor and Signora Baptista, and he became a traveling player. The maestro gave Giovanni his own costume, and before the play would begin, he would put on the face of a clown. He would step out in front of the curtain and roll out his rug, open up his colorful bag, and then he would bow, and then he would begin to juggle. First, sticks, and then plates. And then he would balance the plates on the sticks and twirl them, and then clubs and rings and burning torches. And finally, Giovanni would throw a red ball up in the air, and a yellow and an orange, a green, a blue, and a violet. And up and around they would go until it looked as if he were juggling the rainbow. And then, still juggling, Giovanni would call out, and now for the sun in the heavens. And he would pick up a golden ball and toss it higher than all the rest. Finally, he became so good, he left the troupe of traveling players and set out on his own. Although he became better and better and his costume became more and more beautiful, he always kept the face of a clown. Once he juggled for a duke, once for a prince, and always it was the same. First the sticks, and then the plates, and then he would balance the plates on the sticks and twirl them, and the clubs and the rings and the torches, and the rainbow of balls. And now for the sun in the heavens, he would call out, and the golden ball would go higher than all the rest. Now one day, 
Giovanni was resting between two towns, sitting under a tree eating his lunch of bread and cheese, when along came two brothers, monks from the local monastery. And when they saw Giovanni, they said, Greetings, good clown. Would you share your lunch with us for the love of God and the blessings of our brother Francis? And Giovanni said, Why, certainly there's more than enough. Help yourselves. And as the three men sat there, the two monks told Giovanni of their work, of how they went from town to town, spreading the word of their brother Francis. Why, our brother Francis says that everything sings of the glory of God, even your juggling. <laughs> That's all very well for you to say, said Giovanni. I only juggle to make people laugh and applaud. Ah, it is the same thing. If you bring happiness to people, you bring glory to God as well. <laughs> if you say so, said Giovanni. But now I must be off. Arrivederci and good luck to you. And wherever Giovanni went, the air was filled with his flying sticks and plates and always the rainbow of balls and the sun in the heavens. And wherever he went, the faces of the crowd were all smiles and the sound that rang out through the town was one of laughter and cheers. Years passed. Giovanni grew old. Times became hard. People no longer stopped to watch him juggle. They would see him in the marketplace and they would say, ah, it's that old clown juggling. We've seen him before. This made Giovanni very sad. But still he went on juggling until one day a terrible thing happened. The rainbow of balls came crashing down around his head. And then the crowd laughed, but not with joy. And then they began throwing sticks and stones at him, so he had to run from the town into the neighboring woods for his life. He came to a stream, and he bent over, and he took off the face of the clown. He put away his clubs and his rings and torches. He put away his colored balls, and he gave up juggling forever. What little money he had was soon gone. And soon his clothes had turned to rags and he had to beg his bread and sleep in doorways as he had when he was a child. It is time to go home, thought Giovanni. And wearily the old man turned for Sorrento. It was a cold winter night when he finally arrived. There was a cold wind blowing and an icy rain hitting the back of his neck. He looked forward up the hill into the town. He could see the monastery church of the brothers up there in the darkness. He crept forward and came to a door in the side that was open and he crept in and then he found a corner and soon he had fallen in a heap and was asleep. Gloria, Gloria. It was the music that woke him. When Giovanni opened his eyes, he could scarcely believe them. The whole church was filled with a blaze of color and candlelight and a long procession of people winding their way through the church. Gloria, dressed in beautiful clothes, carrying gifts that they were placing at the foot of a statue. What is all this, said Giovanni to a woman standing nearby. 
my old man. It, it's the birthday of the holy child. It's the procession of gifts. Giovanni watched until all the people had gone out of the church and all the candles had been extinguished except for the ones around the statue. He crept forward looking at the statue. The child looked so stern. Oh, lady, I, I wish that I too had something to give your child. He looks so sad, even with all of these beautiful gifts around him. But, but wait, I, I used to make people smile. And quickly, Giovanni went over to the corner and he shook out his costume and he put on the face of the clown. He rolled out his little rug and bowed in front of the statue, and then he began to juggle. First, the sticks, and then the plates. And then he began to balance the plates on the sticks and, and twirl them. And then the clubs and the rings. Now at this moment, the brother Sexton came into the church to extinguish the candles for the night. And when he saw this old clown dressed in rags, juggling in front of the holy statue, he was horrified. And he ran out, calling, Father, come quick, a sacrilege. But Giovanni did not hear him or see him. He was throwing a red ball up in the air, and a yellow and an orange, a green, a blue, and a violet. And up and around they went until it looked as if he were juggling the rainbow. And now for the sun in the heavens, he called out. And still juggling, he picked up the golden ball, and it went higher than the rest. Faster and faster they went. It was a blaze of color. It was magnificent. Giovanni's old heart was pounding. For you, sweet child, for you, he called out. And then suddenly his old heart stopped beating, and he fell to the floor. Just then the priest and the brother Sexton came into the church. The priest bent over Giovanni. Why, the old clown is dead. God rest his soul. But the brother Sexton did not hear him. Look, Father, the statue. And when the priest turned, he saw that the child was smiling. And in his hands, he held the golden ball. The Clown of God, a story told for you by Fran Yardley, adapted from an adaptation of that story. That story is very, very old. It comes from the 11th century, but has been adapted a number of times, and Fran took her cue from the wonderful picture book adaptation by the wonderful artist and picture book illustrator Tommy DePaola. And I've been listening to it here with, uh, with Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, what a story that is. Yeah, I loved this story. Initially, it drew my attention uh, because I have spent a lot of time studying theater, mm -hmm. and the the Commedia dell'arte aspect of it caught my attention. I was like, ooh, fun. We <laughs> like that. But then what really held my attention was this idea that if if our only accomplishment in life is making other people smile, then mm. we've we've succeeded. Yeah, yeah. And a story like that can not only sort of communicate uh, values and ideas, right? But it can also sort of open the 
lid on uh, on a piece of history and a skill set and a tradition that might be fun to to study more of, right? Exactly. I think it's something that that kind of gets lost a little in the in the woodwork, Commedia dell'arte, and and all that. <laughs> well, again, the story was uh, the clown of God, told for you by Fran Yardley, a story that goes all the way back to the 11th century. Pleasure to listen to it here with Kendra. Kendra, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to have you with us this hour on The Appleseed. We're going to fill it up with stories for you. And a moment ago, you heard an old Italian tale called The Clown of God, told for you by Fran Yardley. And you can find more of Fran Yardley's work by visiting her website, findingtruenorth.biz. You can find out what Fran is up to there in New York in the Adirondack Mountains, where she does all kinds of things as an author and storyteller. Pleasure to have brought you that tale. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. You're going to hear a story called Tipingi by the story crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. You're going to really enjoy that tale. And you're going to hear from Diane Edgecombe as well, a story called Three Green Ladies, a story from a collection of stories uh, about trees, stories about trees from all over the world. The collection is called In the Groves, and you're going to enjoy that Diane Edgecombe story. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can often spark memories for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room as stories, we want to bring you a memory here as an entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's a memory of mine that begins at an intersection. Here's the story. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I was driving home one day in heavy traffic when I found myself stuck at an intersection along with a few dozen other cars. Now, in front of me was a big old van. And in close quarters like that, with lots of cars packed into a small space on a nice day, you can hear each other's radios. And you may have passed cars before that have bass pumping out through subwoofers that make the road shake, the road you're driving on. The van in front of me was rocking and bouncing in ways that would blow the ceiling off the Richter scale. The bass was thumping up through the floor of my own car, rattling the windows, must be some subwoofer, I thought. Just then, the left turn light went green, and the row of cars waiting in that turn lane filed off to the left, and with them, surprisingly, filed off the thumping bass. It hadn't been coming from the van in front of me at all, but from some other car that was now headed off somewhere to the left. But oddly, the van in front of me was still rocking and jumping, the light was still red and gave me a moment to wonder why. I figured that bass loud enough to be rocking that van ought to at least be audible to the car behind it, to me. As I sat there wondering, a dog suddenly pressed its face against the tinted rear window of the van. 
It nearly caused me to cry out in surprise. Now, I've seen dogs in cars before. There's no surprise in that. But this dog, though shaped more or less like other dogs I've seen, was about the size of a mid-sized rhino. I feared for my life. It was astonishing. Face in the window, the monstrous dog pointed its nose in the air and barked five or six times. I couldn't hear the bark, but with the bark, the van rocked back and forth in perfect rhythm to the barking. Suddenly, the term subwoofer took on a meaning I hadn't pondered before. It wasn't a massive stereo system that was rocking and bouncing that van around. It was this enormous dog. By now, the light had gone green, but the van stayed put for a second. I peered beyond the massive head of the dog to the silhouette of the driver that I could just barely see. But I could see that he was turned around in his seat, waving his hand desperately and energetically at the dog as it barked, the van rocking and bouncing all the while. And I figured, I thought I knew, I was looking at a guy who loved his dog but who wished that for one moment it would just stop barking, stop bouncing his van around so he could drive without getting seasick. Someone behind me beeped their horn then, and the driver snapped forward again. The van lurched through the intersection, rocking like a quarter ride at the supermarket, the dog still barking away in the back window. And it left me filled with all sorts of Life thoughts, self-reflective, self-improvement thoughts. Here's what I mean. There was a time, I suppose, when that dog was a perfectly manageable puppy, right? Well, I found myself wondering what puppy-sized habits, what perfectly manageable, oh, I don't know, vices maybe I'd allowed to creep into my own life. Again, when they're perfectly manageable puppy-sized things. What nearly innocent proclivities had come into my life or in my heart that might grow up to require so much space and make so much noise that they make the van of my life difficult to drive? Is that too weird a thing to think? I've heard people speak of such things as monkeys on the backs of their owners. Ever heard that phrase that something's like a monkey on your back? Yeah, it's kind of an old phrase. I don't know much about monkeys, but after seeing that van, I think from now on it'll be difficult for me to refer to those perfectly avoidable life nuisances as anything but dogs in the van. One thing's for sure, with all due respect to the good owner of the dog, it seemed that a solution to his problem might have simply been to not bring the dog along. And if that sounds cold-hearted, it might do to remember that I'm not really talking about dogs at all anymore. I'm talking about those things about ourselves that we have allowed to take over, get in the way, those things that would once behave themselves in public, but that with time are getting more and more difficult to control. If you've got a dog like that in your van, it might be time to pull over and let it out. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. 
thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And if that happens as you listen to an episode of The Appleseed, we hope you'll reach out to us. Write down your own memories, your own stories, and send them to us at theappleseed at byu.edu. We love to hear from you. And some of our favorite tales come from listeners just like you. In just a moment, you're going to hear a story from the Story Crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, a story called Tipingi. And you're really going to enjoy that story, we know. Uh, first, though, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we love, the films that we see, the meals that we share. All of those can be triggers for memories that we can share as stories with the people that we love. And we love to talk about how some of those stories come into our lives with friends. I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by a longtime friend of the Appleseed, one of our favorite storytellers, Kim Whitecamp. Kim, it's great to have you with me. It is so good to be here with you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm excited about what we're going to talk about here because I, like you, have had the experience of, you know, being in some quotidian context. You know, you're just you're not doing anything in particular. And suddenly a smell comes across the air that that throws you right back into some, you know, rich memory. You know, suddenly your your mind is kind of alive with with something you haven't thought about in years just because of one smell or another, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, one of my favorite scents or smells is campfire smoke. Yeah. When my husband and I are driving and I get a whiff of it, I roll down the window. <laughs> if I'm outside and I smell it, I stand there and enjoy it. And he knows that when I come home at the end of the day, if he's out back by the deck, which is in the woods, we have a fire pit. And he knows that if he lights that, it puts me in a really good mood. <laughs> I love the smell of campfire smoke. Yeah. And no matter where I'm at, if I... Get a, get a whiff, I have to stop and just enjoy it because the minute I smell it, I am taken back to when I camped with my mom and dad and mm. my brothers and my sisters. We started out with tents, and then we moved to a pop-up camper. <laughs> and, you know, my mom used to say she'd wash our cloth diapers in the creeks at the camp. You know, I mean, we, yeah. they were hardcore yeah. when they yeah. were younger. <laughs> and then my dad got really involved in the recreational vehicle world. Yeah. And we moved to a hard top pole behind. Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. no, we were yeah. really getting Uptown. fancy. <laughs> and But the, my main memory that I have is in the pop-up. Yeah. So my mom and dad and all of their friends would go camping together, and they would put all their campers next to each other, and in the middle, they would meet and have a big a big campfire that went yeah. from all, all day until they went to bed. Right. And my dad would bring bags of chestnuts, and they would roast chestnuts over the fire, and I would sneak them and eat them raw, and then, of course, you know— Every adult there says you're going to get worms, right? right because right. that's it's disgusting. But it's they, it was a it was a it was a tactic to scare us because <laughs> I would eat raw chestnuts like crazy. And needless to say, I never did. Never got worms. This, yeah. yeah, but um, just like raw potatoes, your yeah. mom would say you're going to get worms from the raw potatoes. <laughs> and so I loved eating chestnuts, whether roasted or raw, and the smell of the campfire. But then when it was time for us to go to bed, 
my sister and I shared one of those pop-up camper bunks, hmm. and we would lay there real quiet, trying to listen to the adult conversations. Yeah. And that smell of campfire smoke would be coming in. And when my sister and I ever had a share of bed, we would link arms. So if somebody came to take us, they'd have to take oh. us both. Your imagination <laughs> does such things, doesn't it? I know. You, yeah. Now at this age, I know I'd be like, take her. You know, I would like, <laughs> I'd let go and I'd be like, she's all yours. <laughs> but we would, and we'd link arms and slowly fall asleep to the smell of campfire smoke yeah. and that low hum of adult talk yeah. and the sound of the night sounds and the crickets and the... And uh, the grasshoppers and yeah. all that good stuff, frogs, bullfrogs. Sure. And, you know, just even into the fall, we would go camping and you'd play until, you know, your nose is running and you're chilly and your mom would throw you a sweatshirt. And when you went to bed, even after the campfire was out, my dad would wake us up. My dad would wake us up, my sister and I, at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and he would sneak us out and we'd have a hot dog over the embers of the fire. And I still don't. I got to ask my mom. He wouldn't wake my brothers. Huh. It was just me and my sister and him. And that was so precious wow. because the campfire smoke would be lingering in the trees. It would be hanging there. Yeah. And the moon would be shining down and it would be chilly. And we'd be wrapped in blankets in our pajamas by the fire with my dad. What was left of it. Yeah. And so the smell of campfire smoke is precious to me for all the things that ride on it in my memory. Yeah. And it doesn't it, it just takes a single whiff of One whiff. campfire smoke. And yeah. you're and you're back there, right? I told my husband if they ever create a cologne <laughs> and that smells like campfire smoke, he's gonna wear yeah. it. <laughs> I think about, you know, it, it's such an interesting thing to hear about your parents and all their friends getting together and kind of circling the wagons, right? And uh, with a campfire in the middle and listening to the adult conversations. And and what you're saying reminds me of one of the characteristics of of camping that I think we sometimes forget about, right? Which is in in our in our homes, we can we can pretty easily close ourselves off from one another, right? And when you're camping, even if you're in separate tents or in the trailer and outside the trailer or what, wherever you are, it seems like the whole world is right there in your head. You can hear the tiniest things, the, the, the smallest movement in the sleep of, of someone that you're camping with will affect you, you know? It's, it's, there's an intimacy about camping that sort of puts us all in the same few square inches you know we we share that and we kind of we 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 commune with each other in a different way than we do in our homes i i really believe that if life in any way is getting you down whether it be something personal physical the news yeah i because my husband and i camp we just camped recently in uh, charleston west virginia and something happens one the connection to the earth but when you see all of the families and the dads with their kids and the kids bicycling and yeah. people walking their dogs, there's a hope that comes out of that, for me at least, yeah. when I see their families, teenagers, all ages, around the campfire. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just makes me feel really good. A community of campers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the smell of campfire smoke. Oh, what a pleasure to have you with us, Kim. Thanks, Thanks for Sam. joining me. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, 
and talking about some of the ways in which great stories get down into our hearts and memories is something that we love to do with friends. Always a pleasure to chat with Kim Whitecamp. We'll have her back. There's a lot more coming up on The Apple Seed. You're going to hear a story from Diane Edgecombe called Three Green Ladies from a collection of stories called In the Groves, a collection of stories about trees from all over the world. And you're going to hear a story called Topingi. That's coming up in just a moment. That story told by Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, the tandem storytelling team that we all know and love as the Story Crafters. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with me this hour on The Appleseed. What a pleasure to fill up this hour with tales for you and your family. A moment ago, you heard a conversation with the great storyteller Kim Whitecamp, longtime friend of the show, visiting from Ohio, and such a pleasure to have her in the studio for a terrific conversation about campfire smoke. Of course, at the top of the hour, you heard the old Italian tale, The Clown of God, told for you by Fran Yardley. I listened to it along with you and along with Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Diane Edgecombe about trees. Uh, a story called Three Green Ladies. And uh, before that, you're going to hear a story called Tipingi from the storytelling duo of uh, Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. They're wonderful tandem, musical, rhythmic, magical storytelling performances have captured hearts all over the country. And of course, uh, we love to play their work here on The Appleseed. This is a story called Tipingi, and we'll let them introduce it. Here are Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall of the Story Crafters. This is a story about a girl whose name is Tipingi. Now, Tipingi lived with her stepmother in a little village on the island of Haiti. Now, most stepmothers in this world are very kind and loving to their stepchildren, but Tipingi's stepmother was not one of those kind. All she wanted to do was live in Topingi's father's house all by herself. You see, Topingi's father had died several years before, and Topingi's stepmother was willing to take care of Topingi until the time came that she could live in her father's house all by herself. In the meantime, she took care of Topingi, and this is the kind of work that she did. Every single day, she would wake up and she would drag a great big heavy pot out of her house. Then she would dig in the ground for sweet potatoes and scrape the sweet potato meat into that pot. She'd take a big wooden spoon, light a fire beneath the pot and stir the sweet potato meat until it was done to just right. Then she'd take a spoon and drop the sweet potato meat onto a tray, making little round balls, and she'd set that tray out in the sun to bake. You know what she was making? Sweet potato candy. And everyone on Haiti loved her sweet potato candy. It was so tasty. But on other days, Topingi's stepmother would drag that big, heavy pot out of the house. she'd pick coconuts from a tree and scrape the coconut meat into the pot. And she'd take out that wooden spoon and she'd stir that coconut meat over the fire until it was cooked to just right. 
Then she'd scoop out the coconut meat into little balls onto a tray, and she'd set that in the sun to bake. And you know what she was making, right? That's right. right, coconut candy. And ooh, her coconut candy was so special that people traveled from all corners of Haiti just to go to her market day when she was selling the coconut candy. Now one day, Topinky's stepmother was out there. She was stirring the coconut meat over the fire when suddenly the fire beneath the pot went out. Now normally that was not a very big problem because normally she stored firewood on the porch of her house. But on that day, there was no more firewood on the porch. Normally, that was not a very big problem because normally she would just send Topingi out into the forest to gather more firewood. But on this day, Topingi was at school. Now, it was a big problem because the next day was the market day when she needed to have coconut candy ready. Hmm. So she was going to have to go out into the forest all by herself and she'd never done that before. She didn't have a choice. So she picked up every ounce of courage that she had and she walked out into the forest. Oh, she didn't like it when the branches of the trees pulled at her hair, scratched at her face, and grabbed at her clothes. So she was very happy when she came to a great big clearing. There must have been a storm a couple days before because there were trees that were knocked down, branches that were all over the place, perfect for firewood. So she began to make a pile of firewood by gathering up all of those branches and twigs and logs. She got branches, she got twigs, she got logs, and she made herself a great big pile. Woo! she looked down at that pile and she said hmm, not enough you see she was a little greedy so she went back and she gathered more branches more twigs more logs Ooh, she made that pile even bigger <laughs> and she looked down at that pile and i bet you can guess what she said not enough that's right well she went back and she got even more branches more twigs more logs she made that pile ooh, as big as that pot that she'd been dragging out every single morning this time she said hmm, that's enough so she opened her arms wide she bent down and she got ready to carry that big load of firewood back oh, back back That was pretty heavy, and she couldn't lift it. Well, she figured she didn't prepare herself enough, so she stretched out her arm muscles. She took a deep breath to feed her muscles, <sighs> bent down again, and... Ah, <laughs> <sighs> 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 oh, she tried it one more time. This time she said, I'm going to have to say things that are pretty positive to help me succeed. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it, 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 I can do it. She bent down, ooh, I can do it. And she opened her arms wide, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And she, I guess I can't do it. And so she turned in the middle of the forest, the forest that had scared her before, and she just called out into its darkness, is there anyone here willing to help a poor old woman carry her firewood back home? Now, there was nobody in that forest. It was so quiet out there. But when that stepmother said that, she heard something behind her. It was a sound kind of like... Well, she turned around, and she saw an old man coming up behind her, and the old man had sticks in his hair, sticks in his clothes, and 
that old man walked right up to the stepmother. He said, I will help you carry this wood back to your house, but what will you give to me? The stepmother thought about it. She and Topingi were very poor. They didn't have much to give. But she needed that firewood so she could make the coconut candy for market the next day. So she lied. I have something very special for you at my house. All you have to do is carry the firewood back home and then you can have it. Very well. So the old man reached down with one hand and he put it under that pile of wood. Now, you remember how hard it was for the stepmother to pick up the wood, right? Yeah. But this old man with one hand, he just picked up the whole pile of wood and he carried it back to the stepmother's house. He dropped it on the porch of the house and it went clunk. Then he turned to the stepmother. Now I have brought this wood back to your house. So what is it that you will give to me? Now the whole way home, she'd been thinking about what she was going to give to that man. And it wasn't candy. I will give you my stepdaughter to Pingy. She can be your servant for the rest of your life. And then I can live in her father's house. All by myself. Very well. Now, Topingi was in the house. See, she'd come home from school while her stepmother was off in the forest. And when she heard that wood go clonk on the porch, Topingi had come running over to the window to see what was going on. Now, Topingi was hiding behind the window. And she was listening to this whole conversation between the old man and the stepmother. And the old man said, very well, but, but um, how will I know where to find this Tipingi? Oh, that's easy. You just go to her school tomorrow at noon. My Tipingi will be there at the well at that time. She will be wearing a red dress. You just call out her name, Tipingi, and she will come and be your servant for the rest of your life. And then I can live in her father's house. All by myself. Very well. The old man went off into the forest. Topingi was in the house. She heard that. She went running out the back door of the house and she went to her friend's house. She got to her friend's house and she said to her friend, wear a red dress tomorrow. Then she went to another friend's house and she said, wear a red dress tomorrow. She got to another friend's house. She said, wear a red dress tomorrow. Another one, wear a red dress tomorrow, a red dress tomorrow, red dress tomorrow. So the next day, the old man went to the well and he saw, aha, a little girl in a red dress. <laughs> but then he saw another one and another one and another one and another and another. No, 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 no. Which one of you is Tipingi? And the first girl said... I'm Topingi. And the second girl said, she's Topingi. And the third girl said, we're Topingi too. Now, now, no, 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 no. Which one of you is really Topingi? And those girls joined hands. They jumped up and down and they sang, I'm Topingi, she's Topingi, we're Topingi too. I'm Topingi, she's Topingi, we're Topingi too. No, 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 no,
and she will come and be your servant for the rest of your life. And then I can live in her father's house. All by myself. Very well, the old man went off into the forest. Topingi was in the house again. She heard that. She went, zoom, out the back door of the house, off to her friend's house. She said, where up? Oh, gosh, what color was that? Thank you. A blue dress tomorrow. Wear a blue dress tomorrow. Wear a blue dress tomorrow. Wear a blue dress tomorrow. So the next day, the old man went to the well and he saw uh, a little girl in a blue dress. <laughs> and another one, and another one, and another one. And another, which one of you is Tipingy today? And the first girl said, I'm Tipingy. Second girl said, She's Tipingy. Third girl said, We're Tipingy too. No, 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 no. Which one of you is really Tipingy? And then those girls joined hands. They jumped up and down and they sang. I'm Tipingy, she's Tipingy, we're Tipingy too. I'm Tipingy, she's Tipingy, we're Tipingy too. <laughs> well, he was mad. That old man went back to the stepmother's house. He said, you told me Tipingy would be in a blue dress. I went to the well. Every girl there was wearing a blue dress. How am I supposed to know which one is really Tipingy? Well, I guess you'll just have to go back to her school tomorrow at noon. My Topingi will be there. Only this time she will be wearing a yellow dress. You just call out her name, Topingi, and she will come and be your servant for the rest of your life. And then I can live in her father's house. All by myself. Very well, but if I don't get Topingi tomorrow, I'm coming back to this house and I'm taking you away instead the old man went off into the forest. Topingi was in the house again. She heard that. She went, hume, out the back door of her house, off to her friend's house. She said, wear a yellow dress tomorrow. Thank you. Yellow dress tomorrow. Wear a yellow dress tomorrow. Yeah, yellow dress tomorrow. The next day, the old man went to the well, and he saw a little girl in a yellow dress. <laughs> and another, and another, and another, and another. Which one of you is Topingi today? And the first girl said, I'm Topingi. Second girl said, she's Topingi. Girl said, We're Tipingy too. Now, which one of you is really Tipingy? And those girls joined hands, they jumped up and down and they sang. I'm Tipingy, she's Tipingy, we're Tipingy too. I'm Tipingy, she's Tipingy, we're Tipingy too. Well, he was so mad, he went back to the stepmother's house, but that old man didn't say a thing today. Today, that old man just grabbed that stepmother, dragged her off into the forest. And she was never seen again. And when Topingi got home from school that afternoon, she went into the house, and do you know what she found in the kitchen? Pantries full of coconut and sweet potato candy. Mm -mm. So you know what she did next? She went straight out the back door, and she went to the houses of all those girls that had helped her. She went to the houses of the girls who wore red dresses, the girls who wore blue dresses, and the girls who wore yellow dresses. That's right. And she invited them over <coughs> so that they could celebrate together because without their help, Topingi would never be able to live in her father's house all by herself. And that's the story. <laughs> 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 the Story Crafters with the Haitian tale Topingi, a story told before a terrific, enthusiastic, and young audience, an audience of kids who enjoyed that story as much as you did, as much as I did. What a pleasure to hear Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall 
of the story crafters. And our next story comes from Diane Edgecombe. It's a fairy tale from Cornwall, England. It comes from back in the days when people believed and invested in the magic of nature and the mischief of Midsummer's Eve, when an old man entreats his son to remember to honor the three trees that stand on the hill of their farm. Will they remember to offer their gifts to get luck from the trees? Find out in this story, Three Green Ladies, told for you by Diane Edgecombe, here on The Appleseed. This story comes from Cornwall, England. All through the tale are references to rituals relating to trees, such as the custom of bringing flowers to the trees just before twilight on Midsummer Eve. There is also the belief that tree spirits can help you or harm you, depending on whether you raise your hand to give a gift or to cut. There were once three tall trees on a hill, and on moonlit nights singing could be heard, and three green ladies danced under the trees. No one dared go near except the farmer, and he only climbed the hill once a year on Midsummer Eve to lay a posy of late primroses on the root of each tree. The leaves rustled, and the sun shone out, and he made quite sure he was safe indoors before sunset. It was a rich farm, and he often said to his three sons, My father always said our luck lies up there. When I am dead, do not forget to do as I have done, and my father before me, and all our forebears through the years. Do not forget. But only the youngest listened. When the old man died, the big farm was divided into three. The eldest brother took a huge slice, and the next brother, he took another. And that left the youngest with a strip of poor, rough ground at the foot of the hill. But he didn't say much, but set to work, and sang as he worked, and was indoors before sunset. One day his two brothers came to see him. Their big farms weren't doing very well, and when they saw his rich little barley fields and his roots and herbs growing so green and smelling so sweet and his three cows giving bucketfuls of good milk. They were angry and jealous. Who helps you in your work, they asked. They say down in the village they're singing and dancing at night. A hard-working farmer should be a bed. But the youngest never answered. Didn't we see you up the hill by the trees as we came? What were you about? I was only doing as father told us years ago. Tis Midsummer Eve. He said it quietly enough, but they were too angry to even laugh at him. The hill is mine, cried the eldest. Don't let me see you up there again. As for the trees, I need more timber for my new great barn, so I'm cutting one down, and you too can help me. But the second brother found he had to go to market, and the youngest never answered. 
That next day, midsummer day, too, the eldest started up the hill with carts and men and axes. He called to his youngest brother, who was busy in the herb garden, but the youngest only said, Remember what day it is? Still, the eldest and his team went on up the hill to the three trees. When he laid his axe into the first tree, it screamed like a woman. The horses bolted, and the men ran after, but the eldest went on hacking. The wind howled, and the other two trees lashed their branches in anger, but he went on burying his axe deep into the heartwood of the tree. The great tree swayed and swayed with the strokes of the axe, but as it fell, it twisted his way, and the weight of it bore him down, and he was crushed beneath it. It was his servants came and took the dead man and the dead tree away. And then there were only two green ladies on moonlit nights. The second brother came back from market and took the oldest brother's farm for himself. And the youngest, he still worked his little strip of earth and took primroses up the hill on Midsummer Eve. But the big farms didn't prosper. And one midsummer eve, the second brother saw the youngest brother up by the two trees. He was afraid to go up there, so he yelled out, Get off my land! And take your cows away, breaking my hedges down. I'll build a stout timber fence round my hill, and I'll cut down one of the trees to make it with. That night there was no dancing together. There was no music, but the crying of many leaves. And the youngest brother was very sad. The next morning the second brother came with his axe. And the two trees shuddered, but he only made sure there was no wind to drop the tree his way. The tree screamed like a woman as it fell. And the youngest brother, watching from the lane below, saw the last living tree lift a branch and strike his brother down. People came and took the dead man and the dead tree away. The youngest brother now had all three farms but he still lived in his little farm near the hill and the lonely green lady. And sometimes she would dance alone to a sad little tune on moonlit nights. And he always left a bunch of late primroses on the root of the one tree every midsummer eve, and his farms prospered. Even though all this took place long ago, there are still many people who won't climb One Tree Hill, especially on Midsummer Eve. And one or two very old people remember being told that hill must never be fenced because it belongs to a green lady.
Diane Edgecombe with a story called Three Green Ladies. That's from a collection of stories about trees, stories about trees from all over the world. That one, of course, from Cornwall, England. You heard there as well Margot Chamberlain, a frequent collaborator with Diane Edgecombe. Margot Chamberlain playing the harp there to add that uh, beautiful touch to the story of Three Green Ladies. It's been such a pleasure to be with you today on The Appleseed. Stories from Fran Yardley, you heard her tale, The Clown of God, an old Italian story told so well by Fran Yardley. Pleasure to hear from the story crafters as well, Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall with the tale of Tipingi. And, of course, it was such a pleasure for me to chat with Kim Whitecamp in from Ohio in the studio with us, talking about campfire smoke, a little smell to trigger a memory that can become a story and such a pleasure to chat with Kim. And you can find more of Kim Whitecamp's terrific storytelling work at kimwhitecamp.com. This hour was written by Kendra Hanna, our audio engineer is Carly Robison, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. What a pleasure to be with you. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.